0: Happy Long Weekend, everyone. Happy Labor Day. And I want to welcome you once again to uh, our worship time together, and we're going to get started in our message here in just a moment after we all settle back in our seats. Uh, Next week, we're going to be starting a new teaching series, which means that today is the last message in our 10-part summer series called Games and Thrones. How are we doing there with the feedback? That sounds better. So today is the last message in our, in our series called Games and Thrones, and we've been reading through the book of 1 Samuel and following through the various characters uh, throughout the summertime. We've been following Samuel the prophet, for which the book is named after, and then, of course, King Saul, and then a, a young shepherd boy who comes onto the scene and begins to dominate the rest of the story. And along the way, we've looked at, at various other characters as well. Uh, we have... Of course, Goliath, the Philistine giant. Uh, We have Nabal, the foolish, and his wife Abigail, the intelligent. And then last week, we looked at a very interesting character, the witch of Endor. And these people are certainly important, but they're mostly important for the role that they play in these stories in elevating the two main characters, Saul and David, as well as God, the character who is writing each of these stories and who continues to interact with their lives. And as we reach the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we see just how different both Saul. And David are now because Saul is no longer chasing David, and I'm going to take a little bit of time to to go back a little bit in the story because I know some of us have been traveling through the summer. Some of you may have listened to some of the message through iTunes or are catching up along the way. So I want to I want to give a little bit of a summary because uh, David is no longer um, run. He's now no longer running from Saul. We begin to see towards the end of the chapter a little bit of flip flopping that the storyteller does. We we hear a little bit about what Saul is doing, and and then later on we hear. More more about what David is doing. And so uh, chapter 27 is, is focused on David. Then we write about Saul last week in chapter 28. The next two chapters are on David. And then back at last chapter of the book 31, we're back with Saul and his last days before he dies. And we get the sense as, as we read back and forth of these chapters that these things are kind of happening at the same time. David's doing his thing over here, and Saul's doing his thing over here, just in different parts of the region. And it seems like the storyteller is doing this specifically so that we begin to compare and contrast these two men. What each of them are doing is they face different and similar circumstances in their life. And we see how God's story continues to unfold even though there's many times when God's word is threatened, when it seems like it may not actually come to pass. So as we get towards the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we find out that both Saul and Samuel are in very bad spots. As Pastor Brad spoke last week, um, Saul is so overwhelmed by his situation with his his tireless energy being devoted to keeping the crown and getting rid of David. And now he's got the Philistines on his back. He's so overwhelmed that he actually goes to, to, the, to the position of visiting a sorcerer, which was a law that he himself enacted to make sure there weren't any sorcerers in that region. So he goes ahead and takes that step and he ends up learning basically what was told to him earlier by Samuel. He learns that, that, um, That His throne has been stripped away from him, and then he also learns some new news along the way that his life is going to end at the hands of of his enemies, the Philistines, and and so is all of Israel. And so what we find out is that what what happens at the end of the book is exactly what what Samuel had predicted earlier on and, and what he learns through the sorcerer once again when Samuel speaks to him. And sure enough, in chapter 31, Saul dies while at war with his lifelong enemies, now, what's, what's interesting about this, what, this chain of events, and this is something that I, I kind of forgot before I, re, I re-looked at these stories, is that something slightly occurs here that could have been a really interesting story, and it could have unsettled all of the political history of Israel, and that is, is that while Saul is preparing and while he fights against the Philistines, he almost could have been fighting against David at the very same time. David has gotten tired of running. He's run all over the region. Several times he's interacted with Saul, and Saul has been convicted and realized that what he's trying to do is wrong. And so Saul has said, okay, I'm not going to pursue you anymore. I'm not going to do any of this stuff. And David finally comes to the realization that that isn't true. And so he finally thinks to himself, no matter what he says, Saul isn't going to give up his search for me. And so he and his men decide to hide out with the Philistines. Now remember, this is David. This is the man who killed the Philistine giant Goliath. And now he's deciding, I'm going to live here amongst the Philistines because then Saul probably isn't going to pursue me. And he's right. Saul leaves him alone. And so David and his men, they kind of set up camp in that area and they settle in a place called Ziklag and they become friends with the king of Gath, whose name is Achish. But when the Philistines gather together to face the Israelites for war... Achish and his men go, and so David and his men go as well, and they actually assemble towards the back of enemy lines. So David's getting ready to fight against the Israelites. Not exactly something you want to put on your political resume later on when you want to become king, right? So he's back there, and this is a huge threat to what's going to happen. And whether it's God intervening or whether it's the Philistines coming to their senses, we don't know for sure, but the Philistine commanders look back among their troops and they see David and his men and that song pops up in their head again. The song we've talked about throughout this whole chapter and throughout the whole book of 1 Samuel. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Tens of thousands Philistines, right? So they see David back there and they say to themselves, what's he doing here? We don't trust this guy. And even though King Achish he he vouches for them, they say, no, 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 we don't want him there. And so David and his men, they return back home. And when they get there three days later, we're in chapter 30 now of, of 1 Samuel, they find out that they don't have a home. Because while David and his men had joined the Philistines, and while they were getting ready to fight the Israelites, their city had been raided. It had been destroyed, and every living thing is gone. And we read in chapter 30, verse 2, that the women and the children are still living. They've just been captured. The Amalekites have come. They've burned their cities, but they've taken all the living things with them as their own plunder. But David and their men don't know this yet at this, at this point in the story. So they do what you and I would do if we came to our house and it had been completely destroyed and everything that we valued and cared about, the people living with us, were gone. They weep. They are greatly distressed. And so this is the situation that David finds himself in. And then we find out uh, that David probably is destined to be a great leader because this seems to happen to all the great leaders, that the men complain, right? It happened with, it happened with Moses, the, the men there, the, the, the leaders, the elders, they're not happy. They complain and they grumble. And, and it happens with Jesus. The disciples, they complain and grumble against him as well. And now David's in this same situation as well. Not only is he emotionally distraught because his two wives and his children are gone, but all the men are distraught. And so they actually talk about stoning David. Now, fighting against his own country would have been really bad, but now he's in a terrible mess. His life is at stake. And so what we find out is that David is now in a very similar position to what Saul was in in chapter 28. The storyteller tells us that for both of these men, Saul facing the idea of having to face the Philistines again and God not responding to him, and now David here, his family is is gone. He doesn't know what happened. His city is destroyed, and the men in his company want to hurt him. The storyteller tells us in both instances, they're greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. Now, Saul's distress had already shot himself in the foot by a couple of times, right? One, he had disobeyed God, and so God was no longer responding to him. And two, as Pastor Brad mentioned last week, he pretty much wiped out an entire house of priests, so he didn't have any spiritual counselor to advise him on what to do. But David, on the other hand, has very good discernment tools at his disposal. So even though he is distressed, we read in verse 6 that in that moment of distress, he strengthens himself in the Lord. And based on the story, this seems to mean two things. He listens to the Lord and he takes action. Now he gets an answer from the Lord because he speaks with the priest Abathar. And he inquires of God saying, what should I do? Should I go pursue this, this group of of people that would have taken away these things. Will I be successful? And he receives a a definite answer. Yes, he will be successful. So he inquires of the Lord, and then he develops a plan. And he develops a a, a military strategy for how he and his men are going to go and find these people and recapture what was lost. So David, David relies heavily on the Lord, but he also has that assurance from the Lord that puts him into action. And it's a combination of faith and action that appears to be the strength that David relies on. Walter Brueggemann compares this scene to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation, for God is at work. It's a combination of the two that come together. And so, David and his men take off on a rescue mission with assurance that they will succeed and with a plan that they will make it happen. But then they reach a ravine. Uh, We find out in the story they get to the Besor Ravine, and the men are tired. Now, when I read this, I think, are you kidding me? They're tired? Come on. You got to go get your, get your family back, right? But we have to remember, these are men. They went all the way out to battle with the Philistines. We find out it takes them three days to get back. So they've probably been gone for a week. Plus, they've just suffered incredible emotional trauma. And 200 of the, of the men, well, we're told that they're exhausted, and so David and, and the group, they decide these 200 are going to stay here at the river and we'll take 400 and we'll continue on our way. And then they run into some really, really good luck, which is kind of a, kind of a non-religious way of saying that God is with them, as, as we're going to see here, right? They find an Egyptian. Now, presumably, they have no idea where they're going to find their, their family back. They, they don't know where they're going. And they run into an Egyptian who's half dead. And he was left for dead. He's sick, and he hasn't eaten or drinking anything for three days. And so they revive this man. And then the man tells David, uh, he makes a deal with him, basically. He says, I was a slave of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the people that raided your city. They, they went to Ziglag, and they destroyed your city. And I'll tell you where they are. I'll tell you everything you want to know as long as you spare my life and as long as you don't give me back to my master. And so they agree. And David, all of a sudden, has a fountain of information. Coincidence? Well, it could be, I suppose. But think again about the differences that we read about between Saul and David. Saul gets no answer from the Lord, and David gets a very specific answer. David uh, gets his sources nearly dead, and he gives him all the information David could possibly want. Saul's source says, you're going to die. So we have a very interesting contrast between these two characters. Kenneth Chaffin says in his commentary on First and 2 Samuel, it's as though Saul, nothing Saul does is right and nothing David does can go wrong. It doesn't feel very fair, does it, as we read these stories? There's not a lot that's fair in these stories, but fairness isn't always a good thing, as we'll see later on in this story. Now, before we get too much further... Uh, I want to give everyone an opportunity to win a prize, because that kind of seems to be the thing that we do throughout the summer series, is we give out loads and loads of candy, and everyone's eligible, whether you are a very young person or a very old person. So I want to give you an opportunity to, to win a prize. And I'm going to do things a little bit different, because uh, sometimes speakers have I won't use the word "manipulate," but um, OK they've manipulated you into, into doing an activity without really knowing what you're going to receive. And I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to receive, and then you'll find out how you can earn it. Now, I have some, some snack-size Henry bars. Sometimes these are referred to as the fun size. I've never understood that, because fun size to me is about 300 times bigger than this. But this is a snack size, fun size, but you get two Okay, I'm doubling my offer here this morning. So who would like to have uh, two snack size? Okay, so I've got um, Danny. Danny, can you come up here, please? Okay, and Walter, you come up here, and I'm looking for one more. Okay, and Kevin. Kevin, you come up here too as well. Okay, so you can come right up here on stage, Danny, if you'd like. You can use the stairs. Come right up here. I want everyone to be able to see you, and here you go. Now, I'm giving to this to you in trust, okay? Because I know you're going to, to finish off these activities. Now, my wife and I were the past couple of days as we get ready for, for September and, you know, all the, all the transitions into the fall. We've been cleaning our house and we've been going through a few things. And uh, sometimes as a parent of young kids, we find out that some things are missing or, or we couldn't clean them up ourselves or we just didn't get around to it. So the three of you are going to help me Uh, get some of the things back in order. So um, we've got this one here. This is a puzzle, and uh, so Danny, if you can work on this. So if you can get these puzzle pieces back in here, I think they're all there, so that's going to be your job, okay? And this is fair, right? You guys are all getting candy, okay? This is totally fair. Uh, Walter, um, we've got an array of different sized shapes and colors, Both. I want you to arrange them by both size and color. And my son is very organized. He will get very angry if it's not done according to his specifications. And uh, lastly, this is a cassette tape. Um, I don't know if... Some of you don't know what a cassette tape is. This, This is why it's called tape. Um, This is The Adventures of Peter Pan, one of my favorite tapes as a child, and my son was introduced to cassette tapes earlier this week. And so, (laughs) Kevin, that is your task, okay? It's everyone, it's fair for everyone. You all get the same reward. (laughs) So you can go have have a seat, and you can work on that throughout the the rest of the message. And once you're finished, uh, you can have your, have your, your candies there. Now... We're speaking a little bit about fairness, but I want to jump back into to the rest of the story where we where we took off. We've got this Egyptian slave who has, has been speaking with David and his men, and, and so they make an agreement, and it's good fortune for David and his men, and so the Egyptian slave leads them right to the Amalekites. And big surprise, the Amalekites are doing exactly what we would imagine of raiders back in the day. They are eating, they're drinking, and they're reveling in their plunder. And they're probably saying, argh, the whole time they do it. And so David and his men, they act quickly. They go down and they fight them. And we're told that no one escapes. None of the Amalekites escape except for 400 pesky men who find camels, jump on them, and ride off into the sunset. 400, which is interesting because how many men do we have in David's group? 400. So 400 escape, but everyone else is, is defeated by the hands of David and his men. And then the men, even more astonishing than the number, they find everything that was lost. Every woman that was married to one of those, those men, all of the children, plus the, the cattle as well, flocks, herds, everything. Plus we need to figure out here, the, the Egyptians said that they not only raided Zik, Ziklag, but there was other areas too. So there's quite an amount of, of plunder here that has been accumulated. And so David and his men, they do the hard work of grabbing all of this together, and then they begin home. And they begin home victorious, and the men actually announce, this is David's plunder, which is kind of a victory cry, and it actually kind of presupposes the fact that David's not just their leader. This is something that that uh, people groups did with their king. So we have a, a little bit of foreshadowing of what is to come. Now, out of curiosity, Do we remember the last time that the Amalekites were mentioned in this story? We read about them here in chapter 30. They've raided Ziglag and now they've come to to, uh, have faced justice, I guess, if we want to use that word with David and his men. But do we remember the last time we hear about the Amalekites? We heard about them in last week's story, chapter 28, when Pastor Brad was speaking. They're mentioned there because Samuel, who was brought up from that strange sort of underworld that I don't quite understand, he reminds Saul of why he's in such trouble. Well, Saul was given the instructions. I think it's back in chapter 15 or so. He and his men were told to completely destroy the Amalekites. And that was part of God's justice. God said, this group needs to be destroyed because of what they've done to Israel in the past. And so in God's grand scheme of, of justice, and some of you might start having questions about, well, what does is, what is, um, justice look like? And, and we spoke on a couple of those messages earlier this spring, if you're curious, and if your mind's kind of going down about what fairness and justice and righteousness looks like. But in, in God's mind, he gave Saul a very direct command to completely destroy the Amalekites, everything. And remember what Saul did? He spared their king, and then he spared all of, of the best cattle the herds, the sheep. And he wanted that for a sacrifice. And because he was disobedient, he was rejected as king. But for some unexplained reason in this story, David is treated differently when he fights the Amalekites. He does not completely destroy them. He's even allowed to take the plunder that the Amalekites had gained from raiding other people. And to cap it all off, David's men celebrate their looting. How does this make any sense? Does this sound at all fair? Now, to David's defense, he has not given explicit instructions from what we read in this story. He's not told to completely destroy these people like Saul was. But it does feel a little bit unfair. At the very least, it feels like the rules have changed. They've changed from what God told Saul to what God now tells David. And whenever rules get changed, it just, it just looks a little bit unfair. But fairness does not always mean rightness. And fairness is not always a good thing, as we're about to see. So the happy soldiers, they continue on their way. They continue on their journey home with with all of their plunder and, and their victory cries, and they come back the same way that they went. And they come to the river, that same ravine, And there are the 200 men who were left behind. And the 200 men are very eager. I mean, I'm sure they probably would have saw uh, some of their animals that they lost and their family members, and they see the 400 who went on. And so they begin to converse, and they're excited, and David speaks with them. And then all of a sudden, the 400 men, those who fought, they have a word to the 200. This is what they say in verse 22 of chapter 30. Because they did not go out, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Now, these are pretty strong words, right? And what they do is they really divide the group. They were already divided in a sense. We had 200 that that stayed and the 400 who went. But now these words really mark a a contrast between these groups. We have those who fought and we have those who stayed. They who go with the swords and they who stay with the stuff. And the men who had fought, they really don't say anything that probably would have surprised anyone in the group. It might surprise us a little bit as we read this, but in ancient warfare, this is kind of how things went. If, if you fought, then you had rights to the spoils. No fight, no plunder, no risk, no reward, no blood, no glory. That's just kind of how it was. And in a way, that's kind of how it still is. I don't know much about ancient warfare, But I know a lot of us live by these very same standards. Does anyone remember the story of the little red hen? This was a story that I read a lot of of when when I was a child. Now, since we are many years past, when I was a child, we have various versions of this story, but the concept is basically the the same. We have a story of a little red hen, and one day the hen uh, finds some seeds, And depending on the version of the story, she has different animal friends. But uh, in the version that I was familiar with, the little red hen finds some seeds and she decides to plant the seeds and then she asks her friends for some help. And so she says, who will help me plant these seeds? And each animal replies with a classic line. Do you remember this? Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the cat. Not I, said the duck. And so the little red hen does this by herself. And so she continues throughout the whole rest of the story doing all of this work. Uh, And she asks for help every single time thinking she'll get a different response. And so she cuts the wheat and then she grinds it into flour, she makes it into dough and then she bakes a loaf all by herself. I think the story I remember, she baked a cake, but that might have just been my own fantasy. I don't remember. But in any case, she gets something really good. She brings it out of the oven and she's done all this work. And then do you remember what she says? Who will help me eat this tasty bread? I will, says the dog. I will, says the cat. I will, says the duck. And the little red hen says, No! I will. And she eats the entire loaf of bread all by herself. Now, from what I can tell, the moral of this story, the message of this story, it attacks laziness. No work, no food, no pain, no gain. And there's a good amount of wisdom in this message, but it's not a perfect principle that should be applied for every situation in our lives. But for those men who had fought and brought back the plunder, this was a principle that applied for that situation. And so they essentially say the same thing. Hey, you didn't go and fight. You're not getting the plunder. We'll be gracious to you. Here's your wife, here's your kids. Now you can go. But the plunder, we worked for it. We're injured. We're tired. You were tired a long time ago. Nothing for you. But then David intervenes. Listen to what he says. No, my brothers, you must not do that what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And so the plunder is divided and shared equally. The one who was injured in battle gets exactly the same thing as the one who napped by the water. The men who rested and who prayed to see their kids again are treated the same way as the men who recovered their lost family members. How is there any fairness in this story? Well, the easiest way to explain the fairness in this story is to admit that there isn't any, it's not fair. It's not fair. But even though equal distribution isn't the fair thing to do, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do because as David says in in verse 23, and let's put that one right up there on the screen there, uh, that next section in verse 23. uh, He says, The plunder wasn't earned by the men. It was given to them. The men didn't find the Amalekites on their own. Uh, They didn't have a GPS device, or they didn't send out scouts in different areas and and find out where these were. No, they found a half-dead Egyptian who was there gave them all the information that they needed to. They didn't find the Amalekites because they were clever. They found them because in David's word, God delivered them into their hands. David's convictions about what happened here are so strong that he makes equal distribution a new policy. Another kind of... uh, piece of evidence that shows us that David's ready to take the throne. Now he is he is kind of acting as a judge and a commander and saying, "No, no, no. These are the old practices, what's been done before. He who fights is he who wins and earns. I'm putting out a new procedure now. This is how it's going to be." And his new guideline is very easy to remember. It's simply this: everyone shares. That's the new guideline that David institutes everyone shares. A person's value will not increase or decrease based on their job. A person's value will be based on their connection to the group. Everyone shares because everyone is part of the community. Now David gives us that that short explanation there in verse 23. But based on that, we don't know a whole lot of, of what inspired David to say these words and to, to develop this new policy. But we can guess. It's always kind of fun to guess and speculate as to what would have led David to have said this. Maybe he learned from what just happened. Remember, remember what happened at, at Ziklag. He, he and the men, they go to the Philistines. They don't leave anyone behind and their entire city gets raided. Terrible, terrible story. Maybe he recognizes that the, the ones who are exhausted, the ones who are left behind actually serve an incredible purpose. It's interesting to me that the storyteller, when he describes these two other, 200 men, he calls them the exhausted ones, the ones who are left behind. But look at the words of David. He calls them the men who stayed with the supplies. He doesn't call them the worth. The worthless people, the one who were too tired, the one who sold us out and made it a little bit more difficult for us to get there. He calls them those who stayed with the supplies. So he's hinting at the fact that these men are still participating. These men are still helping us accomplish our mission. They're still part of the group, they just happen to be in a little bit of a different location. It's possible that David saw himself in these men who stayed behind. Remember, David is the eighth born child, he's the one who stayed behind. He's the one who stayed behind when his older brothers went and they fought against the Philistines. He's the one that was left with the menial task of looking after his father's herds. Maybe he recognized that the men who stayed behind are really kind of like him as well. Or maybe God is simply leading David to understand and establish a new kingdom, a different type of kingdom, a kingdom where things aren't always fair, but where they're good, a kingdom that says, The last will be first, and the first shall be last. A kingdom that says everyone shares. Now, some of you, as you listen to this new policy that David has adopted, you might think that it sounds a little bit familiar. It might make you think about a parable about Jesus tells about a worker in a vineyard who who hires out a number of people, and he says, I'm going to pay you this amount. And of course, uh, he does pay them that amount but each of them work a different amount of hours. This parable bothers me more than any other parable because it is so unfair. It also inspired me for the the three people who are now going through the unpractice of going through cassette tapes and a whole bunch of other random things. This story might remind you about what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, about the church. Paul's point is almost exactly the same as the point that David makes here. We, the church, are a body. Every part has value. Every part is connected. Every part has responsibility. We do this together. Everyone shares. The conversation that David had with the men at the ravine that day has become a foundational principle for God's people. Everyone shares. But of course, there's a major threat to this principle. The biggest threat to a sharing community is the idea that sharing isn't fair. And it's true. Sharing isn't fair. It just isn't. It's just not fair. But if we make fairness our biggest value, I think we'll discover that fairness isn't as great as we think it is. And we'll also find out that we have very good reasons to celebrate unfairness. If we live by fairness, every sinner would have to pay for their sins, If God treated us fairly, we'd all have to do something about our own sin. But because of Jesus' mercy, we don't have to pay. And because of Jesus' grace, he already paid for us. It's the best case of unfairness that I can think of. It's called good news. It's not called fair news. It's called good news. That news certainly wasn't good news for Jesus. But it's good news for us. It's good news because we don't get What we deserve. Now, the men who stayed with the stuff that day, they got very good news. But whenever someone gets good news, it often means that someone else is paying for it. That's what Jesus did for you, that's what Jesus did for all of us. It's something we all share together. Can you think of a time when someone has treated themselves unfairly in order to give you something? You think of a time when someone purposely treated themselves unfairly in order to give you something. Did you consider the cost? Did you thank them? Did you take their gift for granted? Can you think of a time when you've chosen to treat yourself fairly and it cost you the opportunity to share something with someone else around you? Was it worth it? Will you choose to act differently next time? I found that the biggest struggle that I have, the biggest reason why I struggle with unfairness, is because I, ha- I have a habit of looking at the situation like I'm the victim. I read this story and I don't think about the 200 who were left behind. I immediately think about the 400 who went and fought. I put myself in their shoes and I say, that's not fair. They stayed behind, they didn't work. I did the work. It's not fair for me to share with them. I put my mind in their head. Instead of thinking of those who stayed with the stuff, they would have said the same thing, but with a different reason. They also would have said, this isn't fair. But they would have said, I'm getting far more than I deserve. See, the truth of my life is that when it comes to my righteousness, I always get more than I deserve. I'm always the one who stayed with the stuff. And as long as I stay there, stay there waiting, Jesus always delivers. He shares his righteousness by giving me his righteousness. It's what we call great news. We struggle to share when we tell ourselves it isn't fair. But when we remember the good news of unfairness, it helps us share just like Jesus shares with us. Now before Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and crucified, he gathered his friends together and they shared a meal. And Jesus took bread, and he broke it up, and he gave it to them. And then he took wine, and he poured it in a cup, and he gave it to them as well. And he told them to eat, and he told them to drink. And these were signs of a new covenant. It's a promise that says, because of what Jesus did, you belong. It's a covenant that says that there's good news of unfairness. His life for your life. His life for our lives. Everyone shares in this good news. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. Our communion tables are open to everyone who's made a decision to follow Jesus and who is in right relationship with him. Our communion table is about belonging, understanding that we as a people belong to one another and we belong to Christ because of our decision to follow him and to accept the free gift of salvation that he has given to us. So as we prepare to celebrate communion, our band is going to lead us through a few songs. And you can choose when you'd like to go to the tables and take. Some of you may want to do that right away. Some of you may want to take it back to your seats and take it with a family member or on your own after you've examined your lives, after you've thought about the gratitude that you have for Jesus and what he has done in your life. We'll also have people available to pray with you. It's your opportunity to speak about something going on in your life, what you've heard this morning through the teaching of God's Word or something that God has continued to impress on your heart. And so please take advantage of that opportunity. That will be a confidential conversation between you and the person you pray with. And it certainly is a way that you can feel encouraged and hear from the Lord. So let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the fact of the good news of unfairness, that we are given salvation even though we don't deserve it. Amen.
1: You choose the humble and raise them high You choose the weak and make them strong You heal our brokenness inside and give us life. Same love that set the captives free, same love that opened eyes to see. Is calling us all by name. You are calling us all by name. Same God that spread the heavens wide the Same God that was crucified calling It's
0: treated us unfairly so that we might have the righteousness of life so let's be grateful and let's make our default mode to share that we interact with people let's think how can i share instead of how can i do what is fair we hope you heard from the lord this morning and we hope you continue to take time to worship him as you interact with other people we're going to uh, sing one final song as a sending song and we wish you have a great day today Amen.
2: asked me, do you take communion differently now that you're a mom? With the idea of this is Christ's body given for you and you giving your body for your child um, to nourish them and to at whatever time of day. And I hadn't thought of that before. And I hadn't had communion. So this is the first time I've had communion since being a mom. And it was just hitting me both what Keith was saying and, and then taking communion. You know, as a mother, you're there to feed your child in whatever way you can feed them. I've had to do a number of different ways to feed my child through bottles, through SNS, through me and through other things. But I'm there. I'm there to give them at whatever time of day. Even at 4am, I hate that 4am feed. That is the worst. I'm sure every mother knows (laughs) the 4am is hard, but I'm there whenever they need it. And that's not like they deserve it. That's not fair. And yet I love them. I'm there to to strengthen them and to nurse them. And I was just overwhelmed realizing as God was saying to me and I think to us I am there to feed you any day and I do it I do it willingly not begrudgingly and he is never tired and he is never weary and you don't just have to come to him for nourishment now on a Sunday whenever there's communion or not communion anytime you need it any time of day he is there to strengthen you and to nourish you and not because you deserve it and not because it's fair because he loves you and that is so wonderful so I just wanted to share that and encourage you I know it encouraged me and um, just a new, new way to experience God's grace in my life and I hope that it encourages you
0: you're more than welcome to go or stay singing.
1: My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood blood and and righteousness. I dare not trust